Our first scripture reading this morning is from Jeremiah 29. Uh, we're preaching in the book of Galatians, and so we're reading from the opposite testament. Uh, a number of readings out of Jeremiah. There's uh, a few famous verses in this one that you may recognize if you've hung around church for a little while. Uh, but Luke is going to come and read it for us. There you are, Luke, if you'd come forward now. Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 to 14. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from, Babylon, from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they might bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they prophesy to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come uh, uh, and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all of your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile." As I mentioned earlier, uh, we are preaching through the book of Galatians. Uh, Galatians is a letter the Apostle Paul wrote to these, uh, this group of churches in, in modern-day Turkey, um, kind of uh, in, in Asia there, and, he, and he's really talking to them about what, what it means to be saved. How does one come to Jesus? How does one understand the work of Christ? And so we are continuing in that series this morning. You'll see as we get into it, he is still on about the law versus what Christ has done in the gospel, but there's some additional nuances. There's some new information coming forward. You'll see this in just a moment here. Before we get to the sermon, Sarah Eyre is going to come and read it for us. It's on the back middle panel of your bulletin. You can follow along as she reads. Galatians 3, 10-29. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. 
It does not say unto offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming, of, the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. So now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. All right, we're going to spend some time reflecting on this uh, somewhat dense text together. Uh, I'm sure that uh, most of you are, are familiar with the theological movie, Beauty and the Beast. Have you heard of that one? Uh, not the live action one. I refuse to acknowledge that. I'm old. The 1991 original Disney production, that's the only true uh, Beauty and the Beast. Now, do you remember how the movie begins? It doesn't begin with Belle's father in the storm, you know, stumbling upon the castle in the woods. That's not the first scene of the movie. The first scene of the movie is of an enchantress dressed as this poor peasant woman, and she comes upon the castle, but there's not a beast there, of course. There's a, a proud, haughty, you know, young uh, human prince who refuses her hospitality. And in retribution, she casts a spell on him, right? Leaving with his mind and memory intact, transforming him into, in, into a beast. And all the prince's servants are transformed, you know, into dishware and home decor of various kinds or whatever. And then the spell can only be broken if the prince learns to love another and, of course, be loved in return before this enchanted rose, you know, loses all of its petals. And so the movie goes on. You, you, you probably know it. I'm not going to spoil it. We have lots of little kids here who probably haven't seen this yet. Uh, but, the, the, you know, will this relationship develop between the beast and, and Belle? Now, why do I bring up this movie? I think the world of the beast, the world of beauty and the beast, is a helpful analog for the world Paul is trying to describe in Galatians 3. Think of some of the parallels between what you heard read by Sarah a few moments ago and the movie which I just described to you. In both, there are humans, of course. There is sin and pride. There is a curse that extends to every living thing. There's an inability for cursed humans to save themselves, no matter how much they do, no matter how, much, uh, how angry they get. There is a need for love to come and reverse the curse before time runs out. And of course, along the way, there are other humans, Gaston, you know, intent on preserving the curse, fighting for the world as it is, and so on. Paul is painting a picture for us of a world that has these radically different paths and goals. And he's, he's urging the Galatians, you have to choose the way of the gospel, the way of Jesus, the way of a curse being reversed, the way of love instead of the way of the law, and the way of the curse, and the way of alienation. 
Now, I'm going to do something just a little bit unusual with our outline today. I'm going to deal with this passage kind of thematically instead of sequentially. I mean, we will kind of move through it in order roughly, but I think in each sort of stage of the passage, there's this contrasting going on. Paul is, is, is showing us the difference between uh, the world of works, the world of self-salvation, the world of the curse, and so on, and the world of the gospel. So I have four parts, and each of them have two ways to them, okay? So we'll do two ways to live, two ways to respond to the curse, two ways to understand the law, and then two futures. Okay, so first, two ways to live. Look at verse 10. Paul spells out the first way to live. He says, you can live, you can have a life by relying on works of the law. We spent a lot of time discussing this in previous weeks. Let me briefly summarize just in case this is your first time here or something like that. Essentially, relying on works of the law, that means to rely on your own spiritual attainments to reach God. In this way of life, it's essentially performance-based. If you perform well, if you do good obeying the law, God accepts you. If you perform poorly and do not obey the law, God does not accept you. You are not with God. Now, perhaps you've had the experience at work of being put on a performance improvement plan. Have you ever had this happen to you? It's HR speak for you have to do better or we're going to fire you. Your performance must improve or you will not have this job. You will not work here anymore. This is essentially a statement of the first way. Spiritually speaking, if you're operating in in the realm of the works of the law, you are on a perpetual performance improvement plan. Your performance must improve, it must remain steady, or God will fire you. He will not have you in his kingdom. You must continually do better, try harder. That's the first way. The second way to live, it's spelled out in verse 11. In contrast to this, this performance improvement plan, Paul bluntly states, the righteous shall live by faith. So instead of relying on their works, instead of relying on their performance, they rely on faith. Now, the life of faith does not imply that works don't matter. Everywhere, the scriptures urge us to live like Christians, if you are one, but simply that your works don't add to your salvation. They cannot accomplish salvation. You're saved by believing in Christ. You make progress as a Christian by allowing God to change you. Relying on faith means relying on Jesus Christ. So Paul contrasts these two ways to live. You can live by works or you can live by faith. Now, if you're a Christian, you nod happily along. Yep, I understand that. You know, check that box. Of course, I'm a person who lives by faith and not by works. Now, I think it's wise at this point to remember the example of the Apostle Peter and how easy it was for even him, giant of the faith, to fall back into a life based on works. So let me just kind of, kind of zoom in on this idea of what we actually rely on. I want to ask you the question in a slightly different way in hopes to provoke just a little bit of different thinking for you. Instead of asking you, what do you live by, works or faith, let me ask you this. What, if you lost it, would make you feel like you had no life? What, if you lost it, would make you feel like you had no life? There are many answers to this question. I'll suggest a few. Some of you may subtly believe that life only has meaning if I have someone to protect me, if I have someone to keep me safe, if I have that special person, and if I lose them, well, then life falls apart. Now, oppositely, some of you may believe, well, no, that's not true for me. Life only has meaning if I can be completely free from any obligations and responsibilities. The moment I am tied down, the moment I am enclosed by, by something, a relationship, well, that's when life feels empty. I have to be free. Or here's a popular one in church circles. Life only has meaning if my children or spouse are happy. If they become unhappy, either with me or someone else, it, it feels like my life is over. Or here's a popular Ottawa one. 
Life only has meaning if my political or social cause is making progress and ascending in influence and power. And if it isn't, I feel like my, my life's just over. See, what do you live by? What's at the bottom? What is your greatest nightmare? What if you lost it would make it feel like, like, like life's you know, stuff is just draining away? There's a whole host of answers. Independence, dependence, family life, power, influence, relying on works of the law. It's just a lot broader than we want to imagine. It's not just religious legalism. That's just one kind. And it is what Paul is addressing mainly in the book of Galatians, fair enough. But works of the law, it's any attempt to make a life for yourself apart from God. It is whenever we find our deepest hope or our largest joy, our very selves in anything except for Christ. If there is something besides God upon which you, you, you sit your deepest reliance, that's just a kind of works. It's a departure from the gospel. So Paul says off the top, there are two ways to live. You can rely on works of the law or you can live by faith in Jesus Christ. Which kind of leads us, leads us to part two. There are two ways to respond to the curse. What happens in either of these scenarios? If you choose door A, if you choose door B, what happens? Well, let me say, you know, the, the way of works over here this is the default choice of humanity. We all sort of start here. We all end up here at some point because we all sin. So what happens if you choose this way? And I say this while realizing, I don't think everyone here is a Christian, uh, and I realize not even all of you who are Christians are equally convinced of this. So let's just do the, 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 the thought experiment. What if you choose a life apart from God? What happens? We'll look at the middle of verse 10. For it is written, and Paul quotes, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. What happens, according to the Apostle Paul? He says, you're cursed. Now why? Because it's impossible to live up to all of the law. There, there, there's too much of it. It's too comprehensive. And maybe to play the cynic, you're like, well, how hard can it really be? A cursory reading of the Ten Commandments, you might think, I, could, I think I could do that. I, I think I could not break any of them. Well, let's just take one example, and we'll, we'll, tr we'll try to choose an easy one. The sixth commandment seems pretty straightforward, right? Thou shalt not kill. And you're like, I think I'm doing good at this. Haven't shot anyone this week. I feel like I'm doing pretty well. I'm keeping the sixth commandment, aren't I? Well, the Westminster Larger Catechism, and if you're like, you know, I don't know what that means. It just means this large theological Q&A written by these very smart dead theologians, they, they kind of go into this question. What does it mean to keep the sixth commandment? And in question 135, I told you it was long, they say, what are the duties required in the sixth commandment? And, they, and they're, they're, going, they're trying to explain, how would you live up to this? And I, I'm going to quote, it's a little bit at length, and I've even shortened it from how it's written, but they say this, the duties required in the sixth commandment are careful studies and lawful endeavors to preserve the lives of ourselves and others by resisting all thoughts and purposes, subduing all passions, avoiding all occasions, temptations, and practices, which tend toward the unjust taking away of the life of any, including a refusal to do violence, the patient bearing of the hand of God, quietness of mind, uh, oh wait, oh sorry, the hand of God, quietness of mind, cheerfulness of spirit, a sober use of meat, drink, sleep, labor, and recreation, by charitable thoughts, love, compassion, meekness, gentleness, kindness, peaceableness, mild and courteous speech and behavior, forbearance, readiness to be reconciled, the patient bearing with and forgiving of injuries, giving good for evil, bringing aid to the distressed, protecting and defending the innocent. And I've shortened that. That's not even all the things they said. And then in question 136, they explain, oh, here's all the ways you can, uh, you can break the sixth commandment. Now you're like, I couldn't follow that. Fair enough. 
if you read the law very simplistically, you, you can be like, I, 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 not, I didn't kill anyone this week. But can you really work to your utmost? Can you really give all of yourself to uphold your life and the lives of everyone around you? Can you obey the sixth commandment by not overeating and not overdrinking and by sleeping enough? Now, we're off on a bit of a tangent here, but I think the point is important. We have, we have far too low, normally, a, a view of the scriptural standard. We let ourselves off the hook thinking, I, you know what, I can basically fulfill the law. But Paul is saying, if you try to reach God by your own moral efforts, you're under a curse. You can't. And even if you're like, I don't like the law of God, that doesn't count for me. I'm going to substitute my own law in its place. How many of us live up to our own standards? How many of us have promised ourselves, you know what, I'm going to be nicer at work. I'm not going to yell at anyone this week. How, how are we doing at that? We promised ourselves, I'm going to be more patient as a driver. Mm, how are we doing at that? I'm going to stop cursing under my breath. You know, what, whatever you promise yourself, whatever kind of laws you make up for yourself, how is that going? We're laws unto ourselves, and we can't keep those either. And then Galatians comes along and says, well, if you break the law in one place, you essentially break it entirely. You're guilty of all of it. So if we are lawbreakers, we get the curse. And what exactly does that mean? It means that apart from Christ, we are operating under the judgment of God. Now, we're not as sinful as we might have been, but we're thoroughly sinful. We're headed toward hell. We're at war with ourselves and others. We are falling apart, and we are coming apart, and we are tearing ourselves apart. If you choose a project of self-salvation, Paul says it leads to the curse. That's where all of us begin. That's where some of us still are. But if you choose Christ, look at what Paul says in verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. There's still a curse, but Paul says there's a counter curse. There's a remedy for the curse, which is the death of Christ. Now, how can that be? Paul, again, quotes from the law to prove it. He quotes Deuteronomy 21, 23. It says, anyone who is hanged on a tree is cursed. Now, that seems kind of strange to us, but the normal capital punishment in Israel was stoning. So that was the way people were normally executed for crimes. Hanging someone on a tree, that was reserved only for those who were not just guilty of a crime, but were rejected by God. It was this symbol of divine disapproval. If you're hung from a tree, everyone who walked by would say, that person is cursed by God. And Jesus comes along, and what happens? He's hung from a tree, not by a noose, not on a living tree, but on nails fastened into cut wood. And Paul says, this was a symbol of him absorbing the curse. So instead of us absorbing the curse, we receive a blessing. We're counted righteous. So according to Galatians, There's a simple choice laid out before every human being. Not an easy choice, a simple choice. You can rely on your own self-salvation project, or you can rely on Christ. But the warning that comes along with it is stark. The curse comes to everyone, and if you're over here, this path has no way of dealing with the curse. I've been reading a book called The Great De-Churching. Maybe you've heard of it. Uh, It's a sociological study of uh, American Christianity. Now, as you might guess from the title, it's about why people leave church, uh, the great de-churching, how people become de-churched, and, uh, and it's particularly why they leave evangelical churches. And it's American, you know, but it's got some overlap with Canada. And in the introduction, the authors show that we, how we are in the middle of what they call the largest and fastest religious shift in the history of America. And they explain in the, in the last 25 years in America, 
More people have left the Christian church than all the people who became Christians during the First Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, and the Billy Graham Crusades combined. So more people have left than ever became Christians during those movements. And they point out how the great de-churching affects literally every age group, every demographic, every denomination. Now why? Well, the author has some ideas. And we're not going to get into that. That's not my point here. My, my point is to, to take a moment to plead with you and to plead with those you know for the, the, just the stakes of what's going on. Because from where I stand, it's, it's really not about protecting market share. I'm not worried about financial donations. Not really, I'm trying not to be worried about the prestige of being a pastor or anything like that. But I am, I, am, I am sincerely worried about hundreds and thousands of Canadians who may be departing for the, from the gospel. And I fear for those who leave churches in Ottawa not to go to a different church, that's basically fine, but to go to no church. If what Paul says here is true, then I am worried about the curse. And I'm worried that if we persist in these self-salvation projects, that the work of Christ will be of no use to us. And I'm not sure how to convey that without sounding like, I need my church to be a certain size, but, but please hear me, this is extremely important. But we need to move on. Two ways to think about the law. So you have these two paths, two approaches to the curse. Paul turns his attention specifically to the law of God and what function it performs. And I want to use two ideas to describe these two ways of viewing the law. Paul says, over here, you can view the law of God as a new precedent that's being set, or you can view the law of God as an addition to a ratified will. Now, when I say new precedent, I'm at least attempting to use that in the legal sense. Any of you lawyers, you can correct me afterwards or whatever. But when a judge or a court makes a new ruling or a novel ruling, they set a precedent. And all future courts, all future decisions, you know, have to follow along. And sometimes when they make a new ruling, an older ruling, an older precedent is overturned because, you know, there's new, something new that has come forward or whatever. And, and to give you an example, if you didn't follow, when assisted suicide was legalized in Canada, it was done by a Supreme Court ruling that established a new precedent under, you know, we don't, we don't see assisted suicide the way we used to see it. Now it's legalized under these conditions and those conditions. A new precedent was set. So when it comes to the law of God, some Jews, the, the, the Judaizers who are troubling the Galatians, they are arguing, well, when the law came, it overturned and it overruled anything else that came before it. It was a new precedent. If a, if a person was going to come to God, they had to come through the law. And now that law, now the law of God, that's the most important thing. Anything that comes afterwards is, is subject to it. So Christ doesn't overturn it. It's still in effect. But Paul is arguing that's not the way the law should be used. If you look at verse 15, he says, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls to it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, for better understanding, in the, in the place of man-made covenant, you might want to substitute the words like last will and testament. Maybe a better way to think about it. Paul is arguing that the way of salvation, that faith in Christ that first came to Abraham, is like a ratified will. Once it is established, once it is sort of officialized, it cannot be changed. Anything that comes after it, doesn't matter what it is, it cannot affect it. Now, you've probably heard of famous cases where like a wealthy person left all their fortune to like their dog or something like that. And then, and then the children come along and they're like, this will is idiotic and they challenge it in court. 
But basically, again, lawyers, you can correct me, if a will was made legally, it was ratified by a notary, the person was in sound mind, all that kind of stuff, if it was made right, that will cannot be changed. It, it, it's set. It may be silly. It may be foolish. It may be not what the children or whoever wanted. It doesn't matter. A ratified will is untouchable. And Paul says that's how we should be thinking about the way Abraham was saved. He was saved by faith in God. And, and if you look at verse 17, he says, even if the law comes along 430 years later, that cannot and does not annul the promises made all the years before. Does that make sense? The promises of God should be treated like a will, not like a precedent that can be overturned by a later ruling. So that does leave us with a question then, of what purpose is the law? What is it supposed to do? If, if we are in this camp saying, well, it is, you know, it was never intended to save us, why did God give it to us? Well, Paul lists two reasons. If you look at verse 19, he says one reason the law was given is because of transgressions. It was given to people in order to restrain sin. So one of the functions of the law, one of the reasons we have civil law even, is if we make this law, if we add punishments to the law, it will reduce the amount of sin in the world. When we add a punishment for stealing, that's supposed to make people steal less. I know there are, you know, whatever nuances to this. When we add consequences to enslaving other people, hopefully we will have, you know, fewer people enslaved. The law exists on one hand to make evil less enjoyable less rewarded, more punished. The second reason for the law, it's down in verse 22, it's a bit more cryptic. It says, well, the scripture has imprisoned everything under sin. And you're like, well, what does that mean? It sounds like, it sounds like the Bible's doing something bad. It's putting people in jail. Uh, this verse means that one of the problems when you create a law is that it generates sinful ideas and sinful people, which is all of us. So Paul writes elsewhere, I would not have known what coveting was unless the law told me not to covet. If you have a child, you know it's like, if you tell them, hey, if you draw a line on the ground, like, hey, don't walk across the line, all they can think about is walking across the line. It's like, oh, now my head is full of ideas about what I want to do on the other side of the line, not on this side of the line. So Paul is arguing the second function of the law, what it does in us is it shows us our need for a savior. Because we have the law, and we're like, that's a good law, but all we do with it is use it to sin more. And we realize we're kind of lawbreakers at heart. We're imprisoned by our own natures, desperate for a Savior who can kind of break us out of jail. Paul is saying the law makes us, morally, makes us feel morally hopeless under sin's power. So from the time the law was given up until Christ, things kind of got worse. The law restrained some sin. It punished some sin, but opened up a new world of many more different kinds of sins. It made a temporary way to deal with sin via sacrifices, but couldn't solve the problem. The law is like this giant band-aid, and like the wound is bleeding. It's not closed. It's not healed, and you kind of slap it on there. It deals with some of the blood, but it hasn't, hasn't healed the wound underneath. In the life of a Christian, then, the law continues to function to restrain sin, to show us our need for a savior. It's a help, it's a guide, but it's never intended to save. It's a tendency to push us back to Christ. Who does? But this all leads us to part four, two futures. If you walk all the way down these two paths, there are two different endings. The first ending for those who treat, try to reach God by works, who are under the curse, who are dependent on the law, it's found very briefly in verse 23, which reads like this, now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned. If you choose life without Christ, well, Paul says the end point of that's captivity and imprisonment. Not literally, not necessarily going to go to jail, just that spiritually. 
Sin will tie you up and hold you captive. Whatever you choose to serve, it will eventually own you. There is no choice of worshiping nothing. All other roads except for Christ lead to a kind of slavery. No no faith equals no freedom. And, And if you kind of take the inverse, the opposite of verse 28, no Christ means all the old divisions will still be there. Still be cultural and ethnic divisions, still be class and freedom divisions, still divisions between sex and gender, ancient animosities, ancient struggles, it all goes undealt with. No gospel, no freedom. Captive under the law, imprisoned, under a heavy burden of performance. That's where sort of door number one ends. Now the path with Christ ends far differently. And we're going to talk next week about what it means to be sons of God, the language in verse 26. Uh, All all I want to say right now is that isn't sexist. It just means that men and women get to be uh, equal inheritors of spiritual treasure. In a patriarchal world, both men and women all get to be treated uh, like sons. But what I want to focus on right now is verse 27 and 28. I think there's some very important things here. Verse 27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So Christ here is being depicted, he's being symbolized as a kind of robe or some kind of outer covering that one puts on. And what symbolism does clothing have? I think there's there's four quick things. It symbolizes identity, clothes, uniforms, that tells us something about official roles in our world. So when we put on Christ, our identity is different. Clothing is also very close. We wear it, you know, next to the skin. In the same way, Christ is not far off from us, but his relationship with us when we put him on is very close and personal. Also, clothing can make you look like someone else. Many of us dress in a particular way that if you wore someone else's shirt for a day, you'd think, why does Ben not look like himself? He looks like someone else. He's wearing someone else's shirt. When we put on Christ, we begin to look like him. We're dressed in his things, not our own. And finally, clothing is a covering. It makes us decent to the outside world, but it keeps us warm. It keeps us not sunburned. It keeps us, you know, not scratched or whatever by branches. In the same way, Christ covers us. He makes us acceptable to the Father. We are protected. We are kept safe in him. If you choose Christ, we are not just speaking about a generic intellectual decision, but a profoundly personal and close one. If you choose Christ, he moves into your life. He changes things. He makes you look different on the inside. You have a different identity. Christ is close. He covers us. You look like him. And I want you to imagine just for a moment a whole crowd of people all having similar, similar robes. What would be true about them? Well, I don't think you'd first notice their ethnicity or their cultural backgrounds or their jobs or their class or even their gender. The most singularly identifying thing about them would be the robe, would be the covering, the clothing. You'd notice how similar they all are, what makes them the same. And that is what Paul is trying to get at in verse 28 and 29, that if you are clothed with Christ, you look like him. And that is now the most important thing about you. Who can come to Christ? Anyone, anyone can come. You can be a slave and come. You can be Jewish and come. You can be a woman and come to Christ. Anyone can come to Christ. And once you are in Christ, that is now the most remarkable thing about you. The most important thing about you. The message of the gospel ought to be published far and wide, blowing past all class barriers, cultural barriers, gender barriers, racial barriers, socioeconomic barriers. It should be offered freely and a healthy church should be busy publishing and welcoming, uh, publishing the gospel and welcoming all kinds of people from all kinds of situations. 
because that is how Christ welcomes. There is a radical availability of Christ. So what should you do with this message? Let's close with this. There are probably some things to stop doing. There are probably some certain works of the law you are prone to and I are prone to. We have to take a hard look at those, do our best to, to walk away from them, repent of them. But mostly, I would encourage you to look at Christ. Jesus Christ hung from a tree so the curse might be undone, offered to us, offered to you that all of our ancient divisions might be healed. His gospel published in the world by the Spirit so that all of us might be one in Jesus Christ. So I pray that, his, that he would rise in your hearts. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you and we are grateful for this scripture passage, just chock full of important truths that we've probably just begun to scratch the surface of. So we, we ask that your Holy Spirit would take these things and, and move them deep into our hearts, far past just our minds, but into the depths of our soul where we believe things and feel things and, and desire things. Change us on the inside, Lord. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.